When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. I think it's good lawyering. It's good practice. If you are actually cooperating, it's best practice to, to do so in an organized fashion. Just from a optics perspective, you're and to recognize that it's a it's a personal engagement you're making with real people on the other side. So providing the most pertinent documents in an organized fashion is is best practice, at least from the perspective. That was Hughes Hubbard partner Mike DiBernardis. I'm Tom Fox, and welcome to the FCPA Compliance Report. Mike D. joins me again to take a look at the recent trial court decision in the Cognizant Investigation case involving Schwartz and Coburn. It's a significant case for anyone who does internal investigations. Are you interested in the intersection of Sherlock Holmes and compliance? If so, check out my great new podcast series, Adventures in Compliance, where I go through each story. Michael DeBernard is partnered at Hughes, Hubbard, and Reed, and we are going to take up one of the most interesting district court decisions around pre-trial work in FCPA cases, the United States versus Schwartz and Coburn, or the Cognizant Technology cases, for those in the know. Mike, first of all, welcome back. Thanks, Tom. Th- thanks for having me back. It's been too long. Looking forward to the conversation. Mike, this this decision, this hearing and this order actually has huge import. It's something that's been brewing for some time. And I commend the court for, number one, having a two-day hearing so they could get a fully developed record. Actually, before that, they allowed the defendants to fully develop their record or their facts. And then the court took two days for a fully developed record that the court could then use as the basis for its decision. And as insignificant as this, a typical pretrial motion might have seen, this one really set the standard for, I think, how investigations will be handled in the future, or at least a roadmap. May I pitch it over to you for some of your initial reactions? Yeah, I think to your point first about the record, it's very well developed and very well laid out, I think, in this order. I think that's important because the, the court here is clear that this analysis of whether an investigation conducted by a company is basically a, the company's acting as a proxy for the government or the technical standard, I think, is, is a sufficiently close nexus between the government and the company. Is It's going to be a fact-intensive inquiry. Right, The court was careful here to lay out the facts as they are in this case, a carefully developed record to, to support the ultimate conclusions. The benefit for us as practitioners is it does provide some helpful guardrails for investigations in terms of 
making sure that they're independent, making sure you're steering clear of just doing the government's work, while also, as in this case, taking a bet, taking advantage of the various guidances and policies that the government has put in place for companies that are willing to cooperate with the government and provide information. Another interesting finding I think the court pointed out was that the what started as the Yates memo later became the FCPA pilot program now memorialized in the FCPA corporate enforcement policy from the Department of Justice that companies can obtain a declination with one of the prongs being extensive cooperation in the investigation. That in and of itself does not mean that the Department of Justice is directing your investigation and a company has an independent right to avail itself of those carrots, if I can use that phrase, directly. And simply having such a policy does not mean the DOJ is directing your investigation. What it means is you have to take these steps to qualify for a declination or to, I think the way the DOJ phrases it, is the presumption will be a declination. So I thought that starting point was also significant. Yeah, I agree. The case law is pretty clear on the point that mere approval of the government of the investigative steps you're taking is not enough to suggest that the investigation is government engineered or you're acting as a proxy for the government. It's nice to have it decided by district court that simply taking efforts to avail yourself of the the cooperation credit and the taking efforts to very specific efforts really to avail yourself of these carrots that the DOJ has laid out is not going to be enough to indicate that your investigation, the investigation done by your lawyers is really a government investigation because there's the impact of that. There's various impacts of that. If this ultimately had been determined to be a government investigation, I think it it can restrict in a lot of ways what companies are able to do in their own internal investigations. So under the facts as laid out in the timeline from the court's opinion, in mid-August, Cognizant, the board became aware of allegations of bribery and corruption. And around, I think, August 28th of 2016, they interviewed Schwartz and Coburn. On September 1, DLA Piper counsel for Cognizant made a self-disclosure on behalf of its client to the Department of Justice. And so clearly the information which led to the self-disclosure came before the DOJ was involved. So I thought that was important. Then there was going to be a second round of interviews with Schwartz and Coburn. And the company was also considering their termination around September 15th. The company decided to push that decision from September 15th to the 29th. And during that interim period, both of them voluntarily resigned. And they claimed that the DOJ had influenced or even told Cognizant not to terminate the employees because of they wanted control for a second interview. And here I thought the fact-specific nature of this case was really important, and the district court's opinion reflected that in the background facts. There was testimony from Cognizant that the DOJ did not influence that decision. There was testimony from the Department of Justice that they did not influence that decision, and the court said credible testimony both times. 
there was speculation from Coburn and Schwartz that the DOJ did do that, but there was no direct testimony or evidence of that other than the dates. I thought that was very important, and I thought very instructive for us, the way the court laid that out, because it showed the roadmap or part of the roadmap that we on the defense side, not that I'm a you, but occasionally I've done a you, you investigation, that we on the defense side really need to make these decisions on corporate self-interest in the corporations count with corporation counsel. So someone like yourself might say, these are our options. These are the facts, these are the potential outcomes. It's your decision. And yes, yeah. I will tell you what your options are, but I'm not going to tell you what to do. And here we didn't have the DOJ telling them what to do. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And maybe take a step back. I, the One of the motions that, that, Coburn and Schwartz made was that because, in their view, this the cognizant internal investigation conducted by outside counsel was just a proxy for a government investigation, they were required to issue Garrity warnings, basically allowing them to stay silent, right? Giving them a warning that says, hey, you don't have to say anything that's going to implicate yourself. So, and you're just simply by failing to answer our questions, you're not going to be terminated. And they didn't get those warnings, right? So that's why this all this all sort of matters and why the court was analyzing whether this investigation conducted by outside counsel really was just a, it was had a sufficiently close nexus to the government's own investigation. But to your point on the employment action, the message here to me is really clear that regardless, frankly, regardless of whether the, the prosecutor's are giving you signals or giving you direct indications about taking particular employment action in order to facilitate interviews, that decision really needs to be a a decision, as you say, that's based on your own corporate interests. That can include, by the way, what does the government prefer we do and how can we get the best cooperation credit? But it really needs to be a wholesome, independent decision on what's in the best interest of us as a company for the purposes of this internal investigation, for the purposes of future litigation, for the financial purposes, for whatever it might be, an independent decision that isn't just coerced or directed by the government. The other thing I thought the court really cleared up was the issue of cooperation in terms of turning over documents. I think the court referenced over 100,000 documents were turned over by Cognizant, but they were not turned over en masse. The significant documents were flagged, whether that was in a separate binder or in some other way. So the DOJ did not have to do And I find that to be, frankly, good legal practice, whether it's the DOJ or your opponent. But also the DOJ's desire for hot docs, as it was referred to, which were the documents which alleged to show the bribery scheme in action. And the court made clear this was a part of the cooperation required by Cognizant to meet their burden under the FCPA corporate enforcement policy. And so I thought the court cleared that issue up, even forward to Kenneth Polite's January speech about double extra secret extensive cooperation that I can't define it, but I'll know it when I see it. For sure. Look, right. I think it's good lawyering. It's good practice. If you are actually cooperating it's best practice to, to do so in an organized fashion. Just from a optics perspective, you're to recognize that it's a 
it's a personal engagement you're making with, with real people on the other side. And so providing the most pertinent documents in an organized fashion is, is best practice. It's nice to hear that, you know, for at least from the perspective of one district court judge, that is not enough in any form or fashion to indicate that your own internal investigation has all of a sudden become a government investigation. Mike, I often say the three most important things about any compliance programs are the following document, but I may expand that to your realm of the legal world with build a record and build a record that can be defended, build a record that can be defended against if the Department of Justice has questions and build a record if they're individual prosecutions and you build that record with a a systematic approach, both in terms of your investigative plan your document review and retention, how you turn those documents over to the government, of course, knowing what you've turned over and meeting any deadlines that are set. And I really like the way you phrase it. It's just good practice. So I was wondering if you maybe talk about when you have a massive multi-country investigation like this, can you really, I don't want to say pre-organize it, but can you do it in a systematic way that allows you to build a record that you can defend if necessary? I think you have to. One of the things that I learned very early on in this practice is that that document and keeping the record is so important with an investigation for a number of reasons. It might get challenged later, sufficiency of the investigation, some of your some of your choices. It is incredibly difficult to challenge the findings of an investigation without conducting your own. But anybody can nitpick methodology or approaches. So you want to have a record that not only exactly what you did, but the reasons you did. So if you decided to not interview a certain employee or not collect documents from a certain subset of employees, um, why that decision was made, why the investigation was scoped in the way that it was. So the need to maintain that record only grows as, as the complexity of the investigation grows. And there can be a real tension because it is, you are drinking from a fire hose in some of these more complex investigations. Things are happening quickly. There's so much information to digest. You are jumping from one thing to the other. So taking the time to reflect and document and plan rather than just react is can be difficult, but it's critically important. I think this case shows why. It was impressed with the level of detail that was in the record about the investigation chronology, the steps that were taken, the reasons they talk about the, the interview summaries, the documents that were produced, why they were produced, the hot docs. So I, I was I was impressed with that. I think your point is exactly right. Building that record is critically important. Justifying the decisions you make as an investigator is critically important because whether it's the company later under new management, whether it's a the uh, Department of Justice, SEC, or another regulator asking questions concurrently or afterwards, you're going to want to have a, a record to justify your decisions. And just listening to that, it also strikes me that there may be a shareholder suit or there may be other claims that if you don't have a fully documented record, could make things difficult for you. I do want to ask you one thing. You said you learned very early on. First of all, I didn't learn this kind of thing in law school, and I want to ask if you did. And if not, 
How did you learn it? Did you did learn it by working with more senior lawyers? Was there some sort of structured format that internal to the firm that you said this, someone said, this is how we try to do it. And this is why, how do you learn things like this that strike me as really not taught in law school? I did not learn in law school. I'll tell you that. No, it was early on in my career working on a very large investigation where again, I felt like I was drinking from a fire hose. I had, there was so much to do, so many interview outlines to prepare documents to review chronologies to prepare and I received direct instruction and explanation very early on. That's all very important. You have to get that work done, but we have to keep a record. These are the reasons why. And so our practice at Hughes Hubbard has, was then and still is uh, to take a very deliberate approach, a planned approach. You can make as many work plans as you want, and, and that's good practice, that recognizing they're going to change and just continue to, to stay with that. Also driven home to me very early on that, once you start something like a work plan and are making changes to it, you have to continue that practice throughout the course of the investigation uh, to ensure you have a, a complete and full record. So it was, uh, it, it was a, it was through gentle reminders and calm voices that I learned that lesson. There was one part of the court's opinion I found interesting as a word, and that was in the original interviews of Schwartz and Co- Coburn that were allowed to have their own counsel present, but there were two restrictions on counsel. One, they couldn't ask any questions. And two, they couldn't take notes. I almost understand the first one, that you couldn't ask any questions. But I would have to tell you, if I was representing someone and not allowed to take notes and not memorialize it in any way, I would terminate the interview. Any thoughts one way or the other on that requirement? And would you put up with something like that? So it's that struck me as well. I get the not asking questions. I do somewhat understand. It's not a deposition where you get to make your counter questions. You don't want to have a lawyer present who's jumping in constantly asking questions or interrupting. So I I understand that. The only thing I can think is there is a need to maintain confidentiality in the investigation and not having a record by someone else, whether it's an attorney or not, outside of the process would be important. I suspect that counsel under normal circumstances typically was not allowed in employee interviews under Cognizant's policies. This was a bit of an exception. And so I think probably Cognizant and outside counsel were more comfortable making, putting whatever conditions they wanted on that, on that having counsel present. Now, would I have accepted it if I were counsel for the individuals? I guess that depends, right? It is what are my choices? The, I, I think the client, especially for that first interview, wanted to participate in the interview because under the cognizant policies, they could be terminated if they didn't. And if I am only permitted in the room, if I don't take notes, then I, I think you're between a rock and a hard place. I guess the one thing I probably would have asked, and I don't know if that cognizant would have agreed, is to see a, a record of interview that that outside counsel prepared just to, to check it for accuracy. But yeah, I, if, if I if we were in equal bargaining position, I certainly wouldn't have agreed to those conditions, but I highly doubt that they were. What about, do you have an opinion one way or the other on whether an employee can be required to testify or will be terminated? Or should that be in some sort of company policy or in an employment agreement? 
I think it should absolutely be in some sort of company policy or an employment agreement or both. I think for employees, it puts you in a really difficult spot. If you, especially if you have evidence that potentially incriminates yourself, um, I think it's very important to speak to a lawyer about that. If you have evidence that potentially incriminates you, I think some people, I'm not going to, I'm not attributing this to me. I'm not doing one of those things that some people say, but some people do and have said that the employees put themselves in that difficult spot when they took whatever action potentially incriminated them, right? And then they're making a decision as to whether they want to participate in the interview or not. Look, the reality is both of those guys could have refused an interview. They would have been fired most likely, but they ended up resigning anyway. They chose to do the interview, probably assuming that they could explain the situation or maybe hoping hoping that not all the information was known to Cognizant or they could save the situation. Ultimately, it didn't work out that way. But to your original question, I think it, from the company's perspective, it is always easier to make the requests or demands if it's in a written policy or an employment agreement and you have something to put in front of them and say, it's your choice. Mike, what, number one, it's been a ton of fun to go into the weeds with you on a pre-trial discovery matter, if we can call it that. But once again, I want to commend the parties and the court for putting together a record that I think we can all use and use as a guide. The court's well thought out recent decision, which walks us through, I think, every decision point that he made. It's an incre- It was an incredibly important issue. I, I don't pretend to think it's put to bed, but I think Many of us now will breathe a sigh of relief or at least have a roadmap that we can follow and have some assurance that our investigation will hold up, at least to the extent that this one held up for the district court in this case. Yeah, no, I, thanks for having me on. I, this is a this is an interesting decision. I think it's a, it has practical implications that are useful for folks in the field. I encourage people, it's, not, it's 20 pages, which I was not particularly long, I encourage folks to read it if they're so interested. We don't get a ton of these in the investigation world. Cases, decisions that have real practical implications on what we're doing. It's interesting, certainly noteworthy when it comes through. So this was fun to talk about. Mike, I look forward to continuing this conversation. Yeah, thanks very much, Tom. This is Tom Box again. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. If you've enjoyed this episode, I hope you'll subscribe, rate, and review wherever great podcasts are listened to. I'd like to tell you about two great new podcasts on the Compliance Podcast Network, Adventures in Compliance, where I look at the intersection of Sherlock Holmes, leadership, compliance, and business ethics. I'm doing all of the Sherlock Holmes stories as well as the novels. Another is Report from ECI 2023, where I interviewed speakers, guests, and participants at ECI 2023. I know you'll enjoy both of these new podcasts. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.